Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Deanna Zanatos, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital. I'm joined today with my co-host, Jill Zender. Jill, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jill Zender. I'm a nurse practitioner in the cardiac ICU at um, Children's Health UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. And we are joined today with our guests, Therese Gillia and uh, Becky Bertrand. Therese, I'll go ahead and let you introduce yourself. Good morning or good afternoon, whenever you're listening. Thanks very much. I'm Therese Gillia. I'm at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I am the director of our uh, infant single ventricle monitoring program and also our cardiac thrombosis program. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Becky Bertrand. I'm a cardiac intensivist in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at Children's Wisconsin. Thank you both so much for joining us today. So um, we are here to kind of discuss the uh, sometimes controversial topic of interstage hospitalization and kind of the pros and cons of keeping these babies in the hospital versus getting them home in between their um, initial uh, procedure and their second stage palliation. And so I just wanted to start off with asking each of you what your current institutional practice is and maybe how that's evolved over time. So Becky, you want to go first? Sure, I'd love to. Thanks. Our um, approach to single ventricles in the interstage period, I think generally um, in Wisconsin has been to try to send kids home um, in the interstage period when we feel like we can do it safely. And I think when I arrived at Children's, gosh, now it's been 12 years ago, um, this was, you know, kind of the the height of our, uh, the original group of, of people involved in the interstage program that started at Children's. So um, Dr. Nancy Ganeum, Nancy Rudd, who's one of our nurse practitioners, uh, cardiology PMPs, who's still, who still is with um, us in Milwaukee, um, Jim Tweddle, um, Michelle Frommelt. So in that group, you know, who had kind of pioneered this program and published the original paper on, on the benefits of home monitoring. So when I arrived, we were, we were doing that very often. And then we had a shift in providers um, for a number of reasons. And I, I think it just speaks to how important that team is um, in success in that I think for a period of time during this transition, we sent fewer kids home. And I, I'm sure there were a number of factors related to that in addition to the personnel. But I, I do think that's a, a huge factor in, in whether or not the program is going to be successful and the kids are going to be able to stay out of the hospital and not constantly be um, readmitted sort of independent of the of the patients. And then over time, as the team became more comfortable, and we also kind of took on um, more uh, approaching kids um, with the true hybrid procedure with ductal stents and bilateral uh, bands and septectomy versus a modified approach that we used to do where kids would stay on prostaglandins, and then obviously would have to be inpatient for that period of time. We've shifted again, I think now to really trying to get even some of those patients who you would consider higher risk due to factors like um, low birth weight, prematurity, um, restrictive atrial septum, significant TR, you know, even those kids 
Um, we've been able to get home for periods of time before coming back for their full Norwood procedure, which is um, what we do. We haven't done any um, comprehensive stage twos um, yet in Milwaukee. But anyway, so that's sort of kind of the way things have ebbed and flowed um, in Milwaukee. How about at CHOP, Teresa? Uh, we started our program in December 2010. And with the, um, with the philosophy of um, getting children home if, they, if we felt they were safe, and also um, keeping them with their primary cardiologist so we don't have an interstage clinic. So um, our patients are seen by their primary cardiologist, but we have an incredible nurse practitioner that um, has an overlay on that, a very intensive um, monitoring. So um, just briefly, she calls them once a week. Um, she checks weights and, um, and saturations and um, is available at any time if, any, if there's any problems. And then communicates with the primary cardiologist. And we have one infant single ventricle um, team physician on call each week that um, reviews all the patients. We send most of our patients home. The last we officially looked was in 2019, and at that point, 6% in house And it may be a slight increase. So um, I think greater. Than, I think I'm comfortable saying greater than 90% go home. Um, we've had some uh, very difficult patients, very complicated patients recently. So the 6% may um, uh, may be a tiny bit up. That being said, about 70% now come in for one readmission. And those are patients, um, the, the risk factors for readmission are um, younger gestational age, genetic syndrome, and on postnatal diagnosis, and uh, exclusively um, tube fed. So that's often problems with the feeding tube is what brings them back in. Our length of stay uh, for the Norwood procedure is about 25 days, and that stayed, that's been staying consistent. Um, we meet as a group every week um, with a whole team of eight um, infant single ventricle monitoring uh, program physicians and review all the patients, and we make a decision, um, try early on whether we think they're going to be a patient that needs to stay or most likely a patient that's ready to go home. And we've been very happy um, with the result. As of yesterday, from NIPQIC, our mortality rate was 1.8%. Right now, we are the have the greatest number of patients and, and the lowest mortality. So we're very happy with that. But I completely agree with um, Becky. It's a, it's a very intensive program that's required. It's time intensive. It's physician and nurse practitioner intensive, and it's not reimbursed. So I think that's one thing that's very interesting, that it's hard. Um, sometimes it's hard to get um, NP support um, because it's hard to justify because we're not bringing in, we're not bringing in money. A question for both of you. Is there any um, criteria um, at birth, preoperatively, postoperatively, that automatically precludes a patient from going home? Or is every patient kind of fairly evaluated or considered kind of fair game to go home from the start? From our standpoint, I think an ECMO run 
really um, raises our concern. So we don't make a final decision, but I think if there's a situation where a baby required ECMO, we would really look very carefully at that patient. I've never thought about it that way. I think certainly that's a good point though. An ECMO run, I think would be uh, (laughs) one of those um, things that kind of makes your hair stand on end when you think about sending someone home. I guess it would depend on the circumstances, but um, I think, I don't think we have any like hard and fast criteria that says like, there's no way unless, I mean, quite honestly, not really patient dependent, but if there, if there is a, um, unfortunately, I think like the, the social situation, um, how far they are from the hospital. I mean, again, I don't think that would be like a hard and fast rule, but certainly, um, if there are enough issues in regard to the family being able to to do the home monitoring stuff, um, and to be able to, to get back to the hospital uh, or, you know, um, be close enough to any sort of, of medical attention. I think that would, that would certainly factor in. One thing comes to mind uh, with that. Um, one of our junior faculty as a fellow was looking into home healthcare disparities in our group. I think that's one advantage of going home. In a family that can be able to go home, there may be interventions that can be done for families that are at higher risk um, with healthcare disparities um, to help them. Um, So when the baby finally goes home, um, there may be more support in place. Um, So I think that's that's something that we're looking into and, um, and may be an advantage of going home. That's a great point. I think I think the other thing um, that's I think a little bit difficult to measure is just the the family comfort in caring for that child long term. If they've had a chance to go home, be at home, be a family um, before their next big surgery, I I again hard to measure, but I have to imagine that that is helpful rather than you imagine a patient who is in an ICU with all that monitoring, you know, um, all the time. And then to just walk out the door with that child after, after a a long time, having those, always having someone there and always being able to look up the monitor and see things, I think can be very challenging to kind of have that crutch taken away. Piggybacking on what you said, Therese, about the socioeconomic disparities, I, there's, I'm aware of at least one paper that demonstrated that patients living at a certain poverty level, as well as race, had an impact on interstage mortality. And I'm wondering, you know, especially some of our patients where I feel like it's been really hard is when there's a significant language barrier. Yep. for the interstage home monitoring. And if how you all, I know we have um, the monitoring program that we use is available in Spanish, which has been really helpful for our patients, but ways to sort of mitigate that or how you approach those types of, of discharges. Yeah, I think it's I think it's difficult, and I think language often is a barrier. Uh, and I think it's great that your your app is in Spanish, which is which is terrific. We work with interpreters and an interpreter app. What we do do is um, our nurse practitioner um, Allison Stag, who's outstanding, and um, and whoever whichever um, physician is on for the team does a discharge consult. 
So we do an official discharge consult and write up a bare bones, everything the pediatrician and cardiologist would want to know in one page. But more importantly, um, make sure that the family is comfortable about going home, that they have no questions about the care and the medications. And that that's a check again, that we as a team are comfortable going home. The other thing that I thought about as Becky was speaking, we always make sure that um, our children are um, discharged from the CICU to the acute care, um, the acute care unit. So we don't discharge from the ICU. And I think that's really important because especially once they get to the acute care unit, we really engage parents um, into taking care of them. Um, and, you know, they're not getting vital signs every hour and they're, they don't have one-on-one nursing and there is a monitor, but um, it's, it's um, weaning them from the intensive care, which I think is really important as well. Yeah, I agree. We don't have a step-down unit. Um, and then our floor capabilities have been, I think, just trying to g- make sure that the nursing staff is not only you know, competent in recognizing um, and understanding the physiology and recognizing patients who who might be having a problem, but also just like their general comfort level with this patient population, I think has slowly grown over the years. And so we have, um, as you said, been able to transition kids from the ICU to the um, the regular uh, ward. And, and I agree. I think that makes a huge difference. Um, to, like you said, sort of wean away Mm -hmm. all of that, um, continuous monitoring that they can get, that they can get used to. Um, It's kind of weaning the parents. (laughs) That's the way I kind of see it. I think it weans us too, though. I mean, you think about, I mean, honestly, like it's, you get to know these patients and these people and you get so used to following like every move. Um, I think it can be a challenge for the providers too, to kind of take a step back and, and, and hand over the reins. Um, but it's, yeah, so it's, I think it's good for all of us. One other area or one other, um, uh, situation is when the family is not present. So I think that's very difficult. Uh, sometimes it's they're, they're at a distance, they have other children, they're working, can't be in the hospital all the time. So we really try to get them in towards just discharge. We often do a 24-hour stay before discharge. Usually we rely on the nursing staff to let us know if, if they think we need, the parents need to do a 24-hour stay. Um, but that's a very challenging group because they're really not used to the baby. Yeah, we value that 24-hour. All of our patients do a 24-hour cares thing with the monitors <clears throat> off in the room, but available to the to the medical staff and providers. Um, generally, we have not only like there have to be two, not necessarily parents, but two family members or even just a parent and an individual who they identify who's going to be like a a second person. I don't want to say who's certified, but you know what I mean? Who has gone through the training and has demonstrated skills in, in caring for the child and um, all the things that you would have them do as part of the home monitoring program so that that parent has support and can, you know, um, utilize another resource outside of the hospital. It's a lot of work that our nurse practitioners do um, not as well as the um, 
home monitoring, like physician team, but primarily the teaching is is done by our cardiology nurse practitioners who just do such a phenomenal job being involved with the patients early in their hospital course and kind of developing a relationship with the family. And um, it's nice to to see that trust build and and for the families to become comfortable um, with taking their baby home. I think there's definitely um, emotional benefits for the families in going home. We recently, a, a patient of mine, um, hypoplastic left heart but with pulmonary vein stenosis, stented pulmonary veins, and really, um, you know, it doesn't get much more complicated than that. Um, but we, um, we got him home and the family for a month you know, it wasn't a long time. He didn't come back until he he came back um, for for his scheduled uh, second second complicated second stage. But um, super super Glenn really is what he ended up getting. But um, the family was was so happy that he was home because they were able to treat him as as normal as possible and let him do regular baby things, introduce him to their family members. Um, And that was so important for them before bringing him back for another operation. As part of our original pro-con debate at the, um, I think it was entirely virtual, PC4 conference, um, I, when I got the email and was, you know, could you take this position of being in favor of keeping everyone in house. And I thought, oh my gosh, Nancy, like I can just hear her, you know, um, but it was, I thought this is goes kind of against most of what I was sort of brought up with. But as I started really trying to think of what would be some of the arguments, you know, that, that I could bring up in, in favor of keeping kids in house. And I, one thing I thought of was, and there are, I think, overall the benefits clearly outweigh um, the downsides to having a child um, at home in the interstage period. But I do, I do think about the kids who just kind of teeter on the edge of some of those home monitoring criteria or the families. I think like, honestly, the, the ones who aren't great eaters, I think are, I think that just adds an extra level of stress for the family because it's like every meal it's not just like a pulse ox check or you know what I mean but when they're kind of struggling to make weight when the families have to come in and be readmitted for an evaluation tune up like whatever so we can figure out um how how to improve the situation sometimes you do though see that like just look of relief on the family's face as they kind of come in and they're like oh my gosh okay we're we're back we're here I do think there's a lot of stress and I had, you know, found some papers talking about, about the, the sort of difficulties from a psychological perspective that some of the families um, go through. Um, Again, I think the benefits generally outweigh the downsides in this, in terms of sending kids home. But uh, as I was preparing for my, my position of, of, pro keeping kids in house, I, that was one thing that I felt like I could, that made sense to me, you know, that, that sometimes this really can be a very stressful period. And while they are happy to be at home, it it is challenging and stressful. We tell our families that there's a, at least a 50% chance that they're going to come back in for at least one readmission. So to expect that 
um, that's just, you know, kind of par for the course. It's not that they failed. I think sometimes they feel that, you know, they've done something wrong um, or aren't, you know, good enough for the baby. But, you know, that's just a situation. But feeding, I completely agree. Feeding is really um, a very stressful situation. We, we try to be sure that the family is comfortable with the feeding. Um, you know, 60% of our kids go home on PO plus NG. So that's that's a good number. Um, but it has to be something that they can do at home. Rarely um, are children on post-pyloric feeds um, with a usually being a GJ tube, but we don't send, we've sent a couple home, but only with nursing, nighttime nursing, because, um, you know, they need to need to be watched and the family can't be up 24-7, obviously. The one other thing that we've introduced um, with the pandemic, we started doing video visits. Um, but with the pandemic, that became more frequent. What initially we did was um, the child was seen weekly by a pediatrician alternating with their primary cardiologist. And that would either be a CHOP cardiologist if they lived local or their um, home cardiologist if they were from a distance. And then that um, was becoming more difficult with the pandemic. And we didn't know if we wanted to bring them to the pediatrician's office so they could get a virus. So we started doing video visits. So now we do one, at least one video visit, two cardiology visits, and one pediatrician visit per month. And with the video visits, um, Tamara Preminger has been very interested in um, digital stethoscopes. So we were starting to introduce that, which is, which um, has been very insightful. Um, she picked up wheezing in one baby and was sent in and um, was convinced that the shunt murmur didn't go all the way through. And it was, it was an impending uh, shunt occlusion and the baby came in and had uh, the shunt stented. So that's been, um, that's um, been an added benefit for us. That's incredible. That's amazing what technology can yeah, do yeah. For us and now. the parents, the parents like it. The so far, the ones that we've done it with, I think there's only been 16 families so far, but they seem to be, um, you know, very responsive and and like the extra support and are happy to participate in it. The other thing that the video visits help with is um, troubleshooting the equipment. You could look at the pulse ox and see if there's a good waveform or they're getting um, they're getting a bad result because they, they're getting a low result because they have a poor waveform. You could check the medications and, and how they're administering them, you know, look at the bottles. So the video visits mostly done um, in our program by Tamar Preminger have been very helpful. I love that I, because I think even about just how much laying eyes on someone can change your perspective. Yeah. I mean, you can have all the physiologic data um, in front of you. I think about even when I'm on call and in the call room and I get a call about like a patient and I always start by bringing up like, you know, whether it's bedmaster etiometry and like looking at this stuff. And um, sometimes even when I think I'm pretty sure I know what's going on, there is just nothing beats walking to the bedside yeah. and standing there. Like, even if it's the same information, even sometimes when the patient is like, paralyzed and intubated. And you know what I mean? I don't know. It's, I don't know what, um, in that scenario, how it's that much benefit to be in the room, but it really is. It really is kind of no matter the circumstance, at least for me. Um, so yeah, having that, being able to, without 
dealing with the transportation and um, the risk of getting an illness just being, you know, in the hospital or in the clinic or whatever. I, I love that idea of incorporating some of the um, using the technology for everyone's benefit. That's that's great. I've thought about, you know, what's my most important sense, you know, and as a cardiologist, you would think my ears maybe, but I completely agree with Becky. It's, it's being able to see them. It's, it's looking um, and, you know, even just, uh, yeah, completely, completely agree. That's what I tell my fellows. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Have to get gotta out go of the bed. Gotta, gotta go, go see, see the, the patient. patient. Yep. <laughs> You touched on a little bit about the um, the feeding that different institutions have different practices as far as will they send home with NG feeds versus will if they can't have an NG, do they have to get a G tube? There's been some looking that maybe an NG does increase your risk for interstage mortality. And so um, it sounds like, Therese, you guys sent about 60 percent of your kids home with some type of NG feeding. Um what about you guys um, in Wisconsin, Becky? Is that your practice as well, or do most of those kids get a G tube? Yeah, it's not. We've talked about changing that, but so far we've kind of stuck with with the either you're doing it by mouth or it's going to have to be um, a G tube. Certainly, if it's if we think that the Glen is coming up in a matter of you know time that it wouldn't make sense to put that surgical feeding tube in, then we don't you know, we, we won't go ahead and do that. But um, I do think just the idea of, you know, these obligate nose breathers, and then we're putting a tube in one nair. I mean, but, you know, Therese, you can't argue if you send 60% of them home, and your interstage mortality is is not high. So um, it's hard, it's hard to argue with that mm -hmm. and say that we're, we're really avoiding a, a very dangerous situation. So um yeah, certainly something I can I will bring up bring up again. We can we only talk about it. it. It goes in waves, you know. Like, well, we'll discuss it, and then we'll kind of not make a change, and then we'll bring it up again and everything. But we do have um, every week we have nutrition rounds. We call it so. Um, it's not just the interstage patients, but the we sit down and we literally go through every cardiac patient in the hospital. Um, we have dietitians, the cardiologists, uh, we do it in the ICU. So um, one of the two ICU attendings who's on service that week is there. And we just go through every patient and talk about what our, what the current feeding regimen is. Are they gaining weight? Are they at risk? And it's just a nice opportunity to, to really, um, and we do inpatient and then we do the outpatient. We always go through all the interstage kids. So it's nice to, to be able to talk about that. And we don't, obviously, if you're talking about nutrition, you're and feeding, you're probably getting into some of the other physiologic issues that may or may not be going on with the patients. And so it's just a nice, another opportunity, I think, for, for everyone on the team to be on the same page about, about the patients. Short answer is no NGs currently. <laughs> I think our main concern has been the, the potential stress of anesthesia for a G-tube. So that, and we've had good success with NGs. Um, so that's what we've been doing. If they need post pyloric feeds, and that's a little bit more complicated. And we we've been going with the GJ, which is a complicated too because they off they may clog, and that that's the group of patients that that may come back in. 
uh, for a clogged tube. But I completely agree um, with Becky about the importance of having um, nutrition support. So for our outpatients, our nurse practitioner meets weekly with the nutritionist and goes through each of the outpatients and um, and um, sets up a plan. I mean, it seems that um, to get good growth, what I tell our fellows is usually it's 120 calories per kilo per day. And if that's on, you know, 24 calorie per ounce, it's about 150 cc's. So that's kind of the sweet spot, it seems, 120 calories, 150 cc's per kilo per day. And if they can't do that by mouth, um, then um, they need an NG tube. If there's children that really, um, that we think will have um, prolonged needs, then after the Glen, we would put a G, we would put a G tube in. Um, but that's in the minority. It seems that um, usually they're able to um, to wean off. Um, that's a project that we want to get more involved with, and we'd love to have a system where we help families after stage two to wean off the NG in a, in a more uh, systematic way. So something we'd really like to 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 get involved with when we have more staff. Therese, do you guys have a lower weight limit for a surgical GJ to be placed? No. Okay. No. I mean, we, we consult our, um, you know, consult general surgery and be, and, you know, usually they get an upper GI and be sure that, that things are fine. Usually, I mean, usually they're at least three and a half kilos, you know, four kilos by then. Um, but I've never heard them have a weight limit. That's we've so done it. We've done it very infrequently. Only okay. when we absolutely have to, because they they do clog, and um, you know, there's all ginger ale and all kinds of things that yeah. that um, that people try, and there's a, there's some type of buster material that you can try also. But the GJs are problematic. The alternative would be a G tube Nissen which would be very, I think we would try to, we have not done in, in interstage patients. Um, do either of you have any type of standardized discharge process you could talk to us about? Um, for example, in Dallas, we've utilized journey boards, which we kind of introduce immediately, but um, really start talking about once they're stabilized from their stage one palliation. But how do you get these families ready to go home and take care of such complex patients? We have a, a little, sh well, it's like a pathway that really a sheet that goes up at the bedside that initially like really is kind of focused in the beginning on, on our like immediate post-op management. Um, and like, when are we going to get an echo? Just trying to standardize, standardize the care and the, and the studies that we're getting. Um, we used to have this thing, it was like stepping stones, I think it was called, where it was sounds similar to what, to what you have, or at least in the, in the name. Um, but aside from that sheet that really, again, is like more focused on like the medical side of things in the immediate post-op period, it really is mostly, um, going, there's like a binder that the families get and the nurse practitioners meeting with the family and then going through and, and making sure the education piece is there. Um, and then that 24 hour cares, um, time, uh, are like the main things that, that we do, but nothing really that stays at the bedside, um, you know, kind of in that way. 
For medical needs, we have two pathways, an inpatient and an outpatient pathway. And then for families, we have a checklist. It's a, it's a green, you know, one-page green um, checklist. It's up at the bed. I think it's utilized differently by different families. Um, but the hope would be as you go through, the family checks off all the things that need to happen before the baby goes home. This was so, um, so good. I, I just, uh, I could talk to you guys forever about the feeding issue. Um, uh-huh. I, <laughs> and it's I, so emotional for families because I think yeah. especially, you know, that if a mom does anything, it's feed the baby. And I think it's so hard for them to have to give that up um, you know, or give it, you know, not, not do it in a, um, in a natural way. Um, and I think one thing that I've thought about is we need to introduce that um, prenatally, that, you know, there's a, there's a 60% chance that your baby is going to need help with feeding by a tube, at least partially. That's one thing that I've started doing. We have um, probably you guys do too, but we have these um, sort of fetal consults for the ones that are prenatally diagnosed and the ICU meets with them. And that is one of my uh, sticking points because it is one of the things that I think kind of gets lost in the shuffle. We're talking about what surgery you're going to have and all of that. But I'm like, the thing that is going to keep you in the hospital most likely is going to be feeding. Right. People are surprised to hear that, but I think it's, it's gotten easier for them to accept it since we've been talking about it so much before beforehand. Um, any other talking points that you all wanted to make sure that we make? You know, there's just one little thing. We 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 um, advise circumcision after stage two. It's a big thing for families, but you know, we tell them right up front that because we do our circumcisions in complex cardiac patients with cardiac anesthesia, they're not intubated, but cardiac anesthesia um, sedates them, and um, we tell them that that's something that we could do after stage two. You know, I think that's another thing to add in prenatally because that's something that that um, I think may get kind of missed. One other factor that we didn't really talk about is um, your institution's propensity towards BT shunt versus uh, SANO and if um, that affects your discharge planning at all. We do both at our institution, and it does not affect the, the discharge planning. We do both also, and usually our surgeons prefer with aortic atresia to do a SANO. So that's usually how they're stratis- stratified, um, but it doesn't interfere with, with discharge planning. Um, I think they all should be on aspirin, whether there's a SANO or a BT shunt. Um, and I think that's what most places are doing. It's like you were reading my mind. That was <laughs> I was going to say my last final question is about anticoagulation and um, what your institution's process is. So it sounds like at CHOP, everybody gets an aspirin. Yes, unless unless they have a clot, which is, you know, as high risk in this group. And then they're they're on Lovenox without aspirin um, for the treatment of the clot, which we have a pathway for, which would either be six weeks and look, and then another six weeks if it's not resolved. Usually the clots are um, are PIC line related. Uh, femoral PIC lines are our highest risk. 
Um, so aspirin, um, unless they need Lovenox for another reason, or unless we think they're, quote, clotters, that they've had lots of clots. And in patients like that, we'll send a hypercoagulability workup. It's almost always negative. But if they've had multiple clots, we think they're at a higher risk of having further clots, and they may end up on Lovenox. Yeah, we're fairly similar. All of them get aspirin. If they've had a clot, Lovenox, sometimes Lovenox and aspirin, depending on, you know, the the history of the patient. But but yeah, our our kind of go-to standard is is aspirin. And there may be a role for the DOAX in the future. Now there's a suspension available. So I think that's all, you know, needs to be investigated. We have not we have not done that in, in children this young so far. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. This has been such an informative conversation um, from two really great programs. So I really appreciate your all's time. We enjoyed having you on the podcast. We want to say to all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.